0: Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson.
1: And my friend, the most beautiful man in the world, Pepper Sweeney.
0: We are here dude, dude, to discover no, and explore what it means to be truly known. Right. And
1: to talk about your wardrobe, because I love that shirt. Even though I'm color deficient, it looks black and white to me. You said it's navy. So when I, 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 I wish I could see it more clearly, because I can imagine that would just be a gorgeous shirt. Yeah. With it's with a, navy and light blue.
0: It's a it's cool. a wonderful shirt, and um I'm sure the people that are listening to the podcast are thrilled to hear about. It. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see it if you go to our YouTube channel and right. subscribe well, that, while you're there.
1: That's right. yes. That's what I'm getting at. I want people to go to the YouTube channel
0: and subscribe. Exactly. All right. So we are here. Uh this is our last episode of season four. Um mm-hmm. we typically do a Um, a season-ending wrap episode and where we kind of cover all the things. And we decided to try something a little different this time, and that was to um, get your questions, to hear what kind of things you were thinking about, you being our listeners, uh, what kind of things you you were thinking about, and maybe some questions that were left unanswered for you. And so we're going to dig into some of those questions today and excited to to Mm. do that. So question number one... Is Kurt as cute <laughs> in person as he is in the YouTube channel? I thought. Oh my gosh! And the I answer thought, I thought. <laughs> is a decidedly yes. Kurt is. We he's he goes sometimes by Cute Kurt, CC. We call him. Oh. oh. And uh, and to answer your question, uh, thank you for asking that. We we really appreciate it because it's an important one.
1: I thought, I thought the question was going to be, is he as cute in person as he is when I'm just like listening to him? Cause like, yes. I, I mean, I, you can't be, you can't, I mean, I, I wouldn't have to do much to be cuter, but I, I could have to do much because just, you know, if you're just listening to me,
0: keep going, you just, <laughs> I, no, I'm just going to stop. I'm okay. Gonna... So seriously, let's jump in here a little bit. So, okay. um, First question is, listener says, I would love to hear more about how trauma impacts our relationship with God and plays out in an inability to trust and or attach to God.
1: Well, you know, one of the things that we, uh, I think we mentioned in our season is that trauma doesn't just shatter our sense of our stories. It also mucks around with, it also shatters the mechanism by which we perceive what has happened to us. So it's kind of like if I'm looking at a le- looking through a lens, like a camera lens, I might be, if I'm looking at a landscape where I'm seeing a traumatic scene, that's one thing. But if the lens itself has been shattered, even the very viewfinder through which I'm seeing the traumatic scene itself distorts things. And from a brain standpoint, this is again another reason why we need the help of others not just I don't just need like mechanics I don't just need EMDR I don't just need brain spotting I don't just need you know I need the presence of others who can see things for me you know, in ways that I can't see and you know God has to God is dealing with the same brains that everybody else is and if I have an experience that, shatters my sense of safety in a context of intimacy uh, because of what happened perhaps in my family or what happened, you know, and especially if these kinds of traumatic events take place in any way, shape, or form related to more explicitly connected faith-based encounters, if it happens in the church, if it happens at the hands of a person who's behaving badly in that context, or even when people... Like misappropriate their offices. They they might not be, for instance, you, it might not be a case of being some somebody being sexually abused, for instance, by an elder or a pastor or a priest. Uh, but someone who's in that position who uh, does not understand trauma, who's not as we would say trauma informed, and they're just talking to people in they they present, you know, they do their work in such a way that they expect people to be able to respond to what they would call the gospel just because of what they're telling them as opposed to being able to be really familiar with what's behind that and in that way we are left to somehow cope with the image of god that gets necessarily created in that context and so i at the same time that i long to be loved by god it's really difficult for me to actually in my my like my body would have a hard time actually responding to this So I've been in I've been in situations where I you know where where a person I I I know I know a person a a colleague and friend of mine who's really helped to facilitate some of this work in uh, their their home church and uh, but there have been other people in the church congregation that have been made uncomfortable by this by this process of developing a confessional community in which people are actually telling their stories more truly, and this person's discomfort led them then to go to the pastors, go to the elders, and complain about this person, what this person's work is, is, is unbiblical. Hmm. And this would be yet one more, this would be an example of a way in which, through misunderstanding, people are leveraging power through the church uh, and as, as a way to continue to reinforce the, tra- the trauma that a person has experienced by attacking the very thing that they're doing to bring people into a space of healing that the gospel is trying to facilitate. So it's, it's all, right. it all gets very, very tangled up. And so who wouldn't have some confusion about God in this regard? And this is why it's crucial for two things to happen. It's crucial that we have access to faithful relationships and by faithful i don't just mean people who will stay the course who will stay in the room but people who are also faithful to the gospel faithful to the stories faithful to the texts that we're reading because it becomes very easy for many of us to just throw the baby out with the bathwater right i now I, I don't i don't want to have anything to do with the bible with god with the church because it's it feels too dangerous um This is though, I I would say, this is where, again, uh, why, why I am so grateful for the work of neuroscience in these, in these last 20 years, the work uh, that why it feels like that we are having this podcast, that we are talking about these things, that the, 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 the the work that we're doing is specifically for those folks for whom like their felt sense of their relationship with God has been shattered, to whom I want to say to you, as hard as it feels, I want to say like, first of all, like, I get it. This is in my office every day. Right. I get it and I also want to say I uh, am extraordinarily hopeful uh, for how God is uh, has provided ways for us to reimagine even in the face of trauma reimagine the stories of the gospel because we actually see what Jesus is doing and how what Jesus did and what Paul writes about is actually in concert with... Uh, what we see that the neuroscience is teaching us that God wants to do in the world.
0: Yeah. You know, when I saw this question, what I thought, what it made me think of was, you know, a lot of the ways that we experience God is through each other. Yep. And a lot of the trauma that happens to us is in relationship. Right. And so naturally it would be confusing Absolutely. Cause confusion. But I just, I love the image of the shattered lens. I think that's so, it's such a great description. Mm-hmm. And I love that this work is um, mm-hmm. about the gauze that fills in those cracks and clears mm-hmm. up that lens. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's great.
1: You know, in our, in our, in our, last, uh, in our last episode, we talked about uh, the woman with the yeah. bleeding dyscrasia. Right. And I mean, she would be an example of someone who like she's she's got a like an acute problem. But in some respects. Like she would be a person who like, I don't really want to have anything to do with the church. Right. She had suffered at the hands of many physicians. And in their day, physicians would have been deeply related to the community, deeply related to the synagogue, deeply related to, you know, these the religious family and one can imagine her saying like i want to be relieved of my symptoms but i don't want to have anything to do with the faith community to which i would say like yeah i get that i really get that i want to uh validate that your your trauma and your grief eh, and jesus does not let her off the hook Jesus, in some respects, and this is, this is where I, I've, I've used this language and uh, I, I had one person like uh, be curious with me about why I'm using this language. and When I say Jesus places demands on us, God is a God who demands things of us. And of course, this can feel kind of traumatizing in itself, this whole notion that anybody like, is demanding. And the reality is that if you're a really good coach, if you're a really good piano teacher, if you're a really good director... You're going to come with expectations, with demands. Now, I realize we we can I can use that word, and it can feel harsh, but there is this expectant demand. Jesus was not satisfied for her for this to, for this woman's bleeding just to stop. Jesus wanted full reinstitution, and this is why he's coming for her.
0: Yeah. 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 Okay. So uh, another question. Um, this uh, this question is about how trauma can cause amnesia and she's she's wanted to understand why with big emotions is there sort of a uh a, an amne- like she hasn't she forgets about these things you know she talks about a lot of her husband was cheating on her and all these different things that um, she blocked she's blocked out these memories and she wants to know why trauma causes that amnesia
1: well I think it's important to, there's there's a couple of parts there's two parts to the answer one one part has to do with the fact that just the, the way that we humans engage overwhelming uh, painful emotion uh, in order for us to survive the world often there will be things that we will do to not pay attention to pain so I, a, a simple example and this happens not uncommonly in in situations that are not uh you know necessarily traumatic like you you you're you're playing in an athletic event and you have an injury right you twist your ankle and it's bad enough that it really really smarts but you're not leaving the game and you go to the sideline you get your ankle taped you get back in the game and you play the rest of the game and you play hard and you play well and you're not paying attention to this because something else you like you really want to be in the game and the next morning you wake up and you can't walk. Right. It's so painful. It's just an example of how able we are to not to choose, to not pay attention to painful things in order for us to be where we want to be. Now, when it comes to emotional pain, sometimes the pain is so great that my attention shifts away from the pain not just because I want to go someplace where I want to be, but I just want to be away from the pain. Hmm. The pain is too much. Yeah. Now, when it comes to the ankle injury, uh, I go to bed, I wake up, like my body is not going to let me forget this. It's gonna. This is going to happen. When it comes to emotionally painful things, a similar thing can happen in that we can for days, weeks, months, years, decades. Practice not paying attention to things. Hmm. But that does not mean that we are not feeling it. It does not mean that our bodies are not encoding it. Our bodies are not holding on to it. An example of this, I write about in Anatomy of the Soul, I write about this story of a a woman who, uh, she was out for a run. She was sexually assaulted on her run. She kind of came to if you will when she got back to her apartment and she didn't the, the details of what had happened over the last 3 hours were kind of fuzzy to her she didn't really remember all that she just was aware that she was bruised and scratched up and she knew something had happened she couldn't really quite take it in eventually went to get help ended up in in our office and we started to work with her and she still didn't have clear memory of the event, but she did know that anytime she got close to that area where she had been running, if she ever went back there, she would find herself suddenly becoming overwhelmed with panic, despite the fact that she couldn't really exactly remember the explicit details of the events. This highlights, then, the difference between what we call explicit and implicit memory tracks, and in order for me to remember things on purpose, explicitly, especially what we would call time travel memory, like I remember what I had for breakfast this morning, I remember that we went on vacation to the beach last summer, I actually have to pay attention to it on purpose, and I pay attention to things that are emotionally salient, So my attention is drawn to things that have emotional significance to me. They might be frightening. They might be joyful. But I'm drawn to the things that have significance. But if the significance is too painfully overwhelming and I then don't pay attention to it because it is too overwhelming, if I don't pay attention to it, I literally don't encode it Hmm. explicitly. But it doesn't mean that I'm not encoding it implicitly. And so I might not remember all the things that happened to me. But I can then have these things, I can have symptoms starting to be evoked in me when I, you know, years later when I am starting to have encounters with certain situations that actually are reminiscent of those events. So it's not uncommon for someone to have had history of sexual abuse as a child, as a young person, as a young teenager, kind of bury that, and then they get married. And in the course of their marriage, in the course of intimacy, not just sexual intimacy, but in the course of just even emotional intimacy, it gets close to those neural networks that represent the terror of the abuse. And so this person can start to have feelings that they're married, and they don't know where they're coming from. And we might not remember this. What's really important for us to recognize, number one, one of the good news, in in, uh, a couple of episodes back, uh, Babette Rothschild, um, we gave a a, about a a trauma healing manual as a resource, and just to recognize that, uh, in order for us to heal from our trauma, we don't actually have to be able to remember all the details of all the events. We don't have to. We don't have to be able to do that. If we are able to do it, and to the degree that we can, through different ways that we can explore that through EMDR, through brain spotting, a number of different ways that we can access these things over time. We can, through the help of a therapist, we can bring these things into greater uh, places of integration. But hopefully that answers the question about like wh- why this happens, right. uh, both from a neural memory standpoint, but also just from a functional standpoint of why it's so hard for us uh, to tolerate these emotional distresses. And, and the big thing about community pepper is that not unlike, you know, when we uh, talked about Emily's story in our last episode, this notion that when she was in the confessional community and she put her hand on her chest, but then so did everybody else. What we were trying to help her do, what I was trying to help her do in that moment, I was trying to help her actually simply regulate her own distress. Mm-hmm. And if that had been just she and me in, uh, in, a, in a room, just the two of us individually, she would not have had the opportunity to witness everybody else doing this, but everybody else doing this actually enhanced her own capacity to regulate her distress. Mm. And this is why the presence of community uh, enables us to hold our distresses much more uh, effectively uh, so that we can do the work that we have to do to gradually um, gain traction, to gradually build resilience, to gradually learn how I can be in the presence of these distressing emotions and be okay. Uh, Like any other learned thing that we're doing that's hard to do, um, that's, again, the beauty of community in these moments.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was a great example in the last episode, uh, Emily's story, Um, and I loved how you went on to say that um, the other people in the room were finding their own healings and emotions in that moment as they were experiencing that together. Yeah. And uh, that's been a common thread. And it's a, I think it's a common thread throughout your teaching. And it's been a common thread throughout the podcast, how, you know, when we come together in these confessional communities, the person that is telling their story is not the only one that's benefiting. It's the person that's mm-hmm. listening to the story. Mm-hmm as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's Mm -hmm. been a beautiful thing to, to sort of learn and understand.
1: Yeah. There is that sense in which in these communities, uh, you know, like when you're telling your story, if I'm attuned, right. Invariably you are telling a part of my story. And the thing is that part there, there, there is necessarily going to be a part of my story that I can't know unless you tell it. Yeah. I need you to help me be aware of me.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Which interestingly enough is like this, this is just, this is the way it is from the beginning, right? A newborn only, a newborn is only going to survive, let alone flourish to the degree that someone is coming like to find her, someone, someone coming to, to find him.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So from, uh, episode nine, um, we have a question about as, as someone who's trying to educate the church about trauma, what would you recommend needs to be covered? I mean, everything, (laughs) you know, (laughs) not just Mm -hmm. with the church, but you know, if you're, if you're trying to, um, educate people about trauma, obviously the first thing you want to do is get educated yourself. And yeah. 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 Well, you know, you know, Pepper, I think, um,
1: It's a funny thing, um, the very thing that we most, that we all most desperately long for is also the very thing that is most terrifying for us, and that is this experience of being known simultaneously. You, you can't get away from it, right? Uh, if, you were to, if you were to ask most people, even, even people who don't, even people who are not Christians, what do you think of Jesus? There would be few, I, I don't think there'd be very many people who'd say, well, I think that guy's a rascal. You know, I would I wouldn't want I wouldn't let that guy I wouldn't let that guy in my house. I don't know a lot of people who would say that, right? It, it was but for a guy who on the surface looks to be so beautiful, for us to kill him means like for for one who is coming to love me and my response is to kill him, which is essentially what I did. Like, that tells me something about me. That tells me something about the degree to which I uh, both desperately long, I I long for the thing most absolutely I'm also most terrified of. And so when it comes to the church and educating the church about trauma, it is important to know that the thing in this case, I mean, in some respects, the gospel, Jesus coming, is the very thing that we're trying to do. Jesus comes to the world and says, y'all are traumatized. Y'all have like, like and, and I'm, I'm, here, I'm here to show you the way into, through, and out the other side of your trauma. That's what Jesus is here to do. I'm not, I'm not just going to show you the way, like I'm taking you. I'm taking you. But I can't force you to go with me. I won't force you to go with me. And you have to, at the very least, you have to be willing to acknowledge that you're a traumatized group of people. You're a traumatized individual. And it's going to require certain exacting work for the healing and the recommissioning to take place. I realize I'm not being very direct with this. Um, I mean, I, I, I would say number one, recognize uh, that this is hard to do, and Jesus knows exactly what this feels like. This is really hard. Number one, number two, um, if you're serious uh, to the degree that you're serious about it, it, it is going to be uh, it, it's going to be helpful. I think to nudge your way into the conversation. That's how I would invite you to consider it. So, like to be curious with people about what they think, what would they like to hand them things things to read that are not going to be too quickly provocative at first. But that can eventually, you know, have them listen to this podcast series. Um, I would also invite them to. Uh, I, I, I the, the people who are trying to do this, I would say, I, I would, I want you not to do this by yourself. Uh, it, for us to think as an individual that I am going to go to, I am going to go to my church. It's going to be important for us to go to our church. So it's going to be important for us to have allies, for us to have our own community that is going to help us do this. I think it's important to recognize as well that uh, it is more difficult, it's not impossible, it's more difficult for a church to explore this and pursue this if the leadership does not buy the idea. Uh, I, I know of a handful of churches I'm familiar with where the pastors are just getting after it. The pastors in their own personal work, right. their own personal lives, these men and women are doing the hard work themselves and so they become reliable witnesses to their congregation about how your life can be transformed when you be, decide that you're going to do this work and it will also mean necessarily that you know you're going to you're going to have detractors you're going to have people who are going to resist this and you know it, We find, this happens in our confessional community, this this has happened before, where, you know, we start a group and a group forms and a group starts to do work together. And there will be, at some point in time, out of the blue, one of the members just leaves. And they don't announce that they're leaving, they just leave. They don't contact us again, they don't come back, it's just crickets. Because at some point, something about their story was touched in that community, and they can't tolerate it. And we say like, now this is going to sound harsh, but the difference between Peter and Judas was not their acts of betrayal. They both betrayed Jesus severely. The difference was what they did in response to their awareness of what they did. Hmm. (laughs) Judas couldn't tolerate himself. Right. And didn't, and for some reason, didn't imagine, right? Because we even see that Judas goes back, he throws, he, you know, he, he, he gets rid of the 30 pieces of silver, right? There's this sense like he's even, like he's having second thoughts. There's this sense, but somehow it did not occur to him. It, it, it did not come to his mind that Jesus would come for him. He couldn't tolerate himself. It's not just that he couldn't tolerate like what he did. He couldn't tolerate what it was like for him to contend with that. And we occasionally have this happen. And sometimes it's what happens, you know, en masse that a, that a church will say, no, we're not doing that. I know a, uh, I, I have a, I have an acquaintance, a friend of mine who's a, who's a young pastor, who's in a large church uh, where he holds a significant position and in which he has for now many months come to the senior leadership uh, he's a he's like an associate pastor at this very very large uh, church, and he's he's come to the senior leadership because he's working with a with a group in his church. They're they're working through these kinds of things. They're doing the work of spiritual formation. They're doing the work of what we might do in a confessional community, and it's transforming lives left and right. And he wants to come to the senior leadership. And repeatedly, he says to me, "They just say that's not what we do here." That's not what we do here. And I said to him, you know, I'm not in the business of telling people what to do. Psychiatrists are kind of loath to do that. I said, but I'm going to tell you that, uh, you know, you're the kind of guy who would stick around in a system like that because you care about the people that you're taking care of. And you're just going to stay the course and stay the course and stay the course until the system chews you up and spits you out five, ten years from now, when you've had enough, you're not just going to leave ministry. You're going to leave the church because you're going to be done with everything. You're just going to be done. And I said, I don't want that to be who you are. And I said, I'd give you six months. And if you don't see anybody willing to change in six months, and this is me, right? I said, like, look, this, I'm not telling you what to do. This is not the Holy Spirit talking to you. I like, I, I, I never speak for God. Ooh. Like I said if this if this isn't any different in 6 months I want you looking for another job.
0: Do you have any theories on why they would have it, take that stance in the first place?
1: Why the leadership would? Yeah. Well, I mean, I <sighs> I do think I do think Pepper, I mean, we can use all kinds of metaphors. It's it's kind of like um you know, I invite you to come into my house, and I and I love having you in my house, and you come into my foyer, and then you come into my living room, and you come into my kitchen, my family room, and you're going to stay overnight, so I've got a guest room for you, and that's great, and you can even see where I sleep and where the office is and so forth and so on, but you know, there i got two or three rooms in my house that um, hold stuff in them that are so bad that I don't even go to see those rooms anymore. In fact, they've been put away and shut up for so long. I don't even remember that those rooms are in the house. And you become so comfortable being with me in my house that, uh, you know, one day you're like, Hey, I was going to go down and lift in the basement, right? You're going to go down because we go down and lift and like, we're down there. Like you notice another room and you just say, Hey, what's in here? And you open the door and you're like, what's that? Yeah. And whatever is in that room for you, You're like, you love me. You're like, you're in my house. You're like, what is that, man? that looks like... And I'm like, get out of my house. Because the reason that I haven't looked looked in the room, the reason that I don't even remember that the room is there is because it's so painful for me. And the moment that you touch it, the moment you say, hey, what's here? The moment Jesus says to the rich young ruler who was earnest, the moment that Jesus says to him basically, like, look, you're asking the wrong question. You're just wanting to know, like, what can you do And I'm saying like, like you can't do anything. And in fact, all your wealth in and of itself isn't so much the problem as it's like exemplary of the fact that you're committed to working your way to get me to love you. And like, that's not kind of how it's working. I want you to stop that and just get rid of your wealth and come follow me. And like, like, no, like you've got this earnest guy who's coming after you and like, no, I can't do this. And so my sense is that at some point, uh the very notion of this formation and so forth and so on, mm-hmm. it destabilizes a leader's clear sense of this is what we're doing because a large part of what the leader is doing is not so much about the transformation of hearts and minds and souls as much as it is about now maintaining a particular structure whether it's internal or external like their own their own emotional structure they're maintaining that by virtue of maintaining the external structure of whatever it is that we're doing programmatically here at the church and the bigger the system the bigger the church the more work and effort that we're putting into maintaining the direction and structure of the church uh, you can know for a fact the bigger the forces are internally for that person that they're feeling like they're having to contain i have a good friend who uh a friend of mine who's a pastor at a church, who, uh, in um, you know, was uh, early in his career with his church. The church was just growing, 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 and a new brand new building project had been put in place, and so forth and so on. And he had gotten to a point where he was a little burned out, and he um, took a month off, a month sabbatical, went and spent time with a spiritual director, in which everything got transformed and at the end of his month away he it's kind of like his eyes got open and he said like uh, gosh i become a, i became aware that we've been all about scaling we've been all about numbers we've been all about buildings we've been all about and as if that is like like that is a signal that the gospel is expanding just because we have more people and more buildings and more this and more that. And he said like, but people's inner, inner lives, like the, like the, like who are they actually becoming? Like that wasn't a question that we were asking. And that's the question that we had to really. Mm-hmm. And so he comes back from his sabbatical, his month long sabbatical. And he told this story to me. He said, I came back and I was sure because I was going to come back and have a meeting with my elders. I was sure that I'd be out of a job because I was going to come back and say, folks, if, I'm going to continue to be the pastor. This is where we have to go. And he said, to my shocking surprise, every single elder was on board. And as they started to move in this direction, of course, the attendance shrank (laughs) by nearly half. And at the same time, over the period of the next two to three years, it gradually started to repopulate Not, you know, but, you know, the, the, the handful of people who were responsible for most of the money that was going into this new building project, like they left. Right. This pastor started to get wind that people were going now to other churches in the city where he lived and other preachers were preaching, talking about him and about the heresy that he was bringing to the church. But I had the opportunity to be at that church several years ago, and I got to tell you, man, uh. These are folks who are getting after it. Hmm. And these are folks who are following, you know, Jesus' model that was not one that scaled things. It was not one we're going to do big, you know, we're big and bad and fast and furious. We're going to do the slow, durable, faithful work of God because uh, God has a timetable and he's uh, serious about making sure that uh, he does his work thoroughly. That's w-
0: w- way off right?
1: the ranch from where we started this yeah. conversation.
0: It's good, though. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we had uh, quite a few questions about our episode on generational trauma, and I think they really kind of boiled down to two different questions, and, and one of them was along the lines of uh, what if a parent has already physically passed down their genes to their children, and then they discover they have this trauma, you know, mm-hmm. What what can parents do to find mental healing later in life to help their grown, almost grown children since their genes have already been passed down to them? That's kind of one mm-hmm. of the questions. And then the other one is, you know, if, if I don't have a, a memory of my parents telling me these stories or I don't have a relationship with my grandparents anymore, you know, how do I make sense of my own story without that information? Mm-hmm. Those were kind of like the two mm-hmm. main questions that came out of this episode.
1: Right. Uh, I think I think for the first question, uh, the really good news is that as we discover more and more that is true about our lives, whatever those things are, as we turn to uh, work through those things ourselves, I think about you know I mean even 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 in my own life like I. I don't think like I I could have told I could have 30 years ago, I could have told you, given you facts about my family of origin and what it was like growing up in my house. But I couldn't have told you the impact that that had on my life at that time because I wouldn't have known the significance of it. I could have told you, like you, you, you say, well, tell me about your dad. And I could tell you things about my dad, that he was loving, kind, affectionate, so forth and so on. I, that's, that's what I would have told you, that he was just and exacting and so forth, but you know, love God and love me and so forth. And I wouldn't have mentioned that he was a guy who, would, who could get angry. And if he got angry, like you didn't want to mess around with him. Now my brothers were in the room, they could say, well, what about like when he would get angry? I'm like, oh yeah, I could be aware of that. And I could name that as a fact but I would not know it in terms of its full impact on me, which was, oh, it was also equally true that I was learning to be afraid of anger, which meant I wouldn't name anger in my marriage. I wouldn't know what to do with anger when it came up with my kids. I wouldn't know what to do when it came up with other people, with my friends. Like, I'm just like, I'm just going to swallow this. I don't know that I'm doing this. In this sense, There's a certain way in which trauma has happened, but like I don't know it fully like I've come to know it in the last seven years. When I discover that, when I discover it now, I can say to my kids, gosh, I want you to know something that I'm learning about my life Hmm. and how my story is changing because I'm now starting to deal with anger. And I might even say to my kids, I'm even aware here, and here's a couple of examples. I'm even aware of how I didn't deal with anger very well with you growing up. And I really want to apologize for this way that I did this or didn't do that. And I want you to know that if there's anything about any of this that you want to talk about, I really want to be at the, I, you're, I'm at the ready to talk about these things that I'm discovering about my own life that may actually and probably did have some impact on your life. And I want you to be whole. And I want us to be connected and okay and well integrated, and so with that in mind, we can know we can be hopeful about the fact that, as we discover things about our own lives, it's never too late to work through that and then share what we're working through in appropriate doses uh what we're working through, sharing that with our kids and what was the second thing
0: then the second the second question that came out was yeah. more about um people that that never heard the stories from their parents and don't have access to their grandparents or anything like that. Um, so how do they make sense out of their own stories when they don't have these resources that they can tap into to find out what, you know, what happened prior to their being brought into the world? Right. Um, it is, uh, it, 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 so, so here's,
1: here's an example of this. Um, it's probably true for a lot of us. I mean, I, I would say it's true for me. Like, I didn't hear from my grandmother that she had been so depressed that she got ECT. She got electroconvulsive therapy when she was... I, I didn't hear that mm-hmm. from her. I heard it from one of my cousins. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear much detail about that story either. So I don't actually have access. I have, I have only oblique access to the story itself and only that through my cousin. I don't have it directly with my grandmother. So, just want our, our, so, so in some respects, I have some, but not full access mm-hmm. to that. So let me, let me give you another example. So in our last session, we were talking about Emily and her story and this notion that she had siblings who had a very different experience growing up in the house, and they were not open to talking about her experience. Right. And so in that sense, she could have had access to things, that she wasn't then able to have access to because they weren't gonna grant it, if that makes sense. Yep. And so it was not gonna be easy for her to make sense of things if she doesn't have access to stuff. And so those are two examples of what I, what I mean to say is like our mind often doesn't have access to things that we wish we could have access to, but we still have these experiences. What do we do with these when we don't have the historical data to help us make exact sense of this? I mean, one of the things that we can say is, you know, we do everything we can to gain as much historical perspective as possible. Talk to aunts and uncles, siblings, and so forth, and sometimes those folks aren't available. We can't do that. Fine and good. What we can do is we can be in a community that will continue to help us talk about our experience In such a way that validates that so that they're saying to us your experience is not crazy your experience is not if if this is happening as we like to say you know with the exception of you know some neurophysiologic uh, you know serious neurophysiologic physiologic problems like if you have a tumor or if you have an infection or a seizure disorder or head trauma in the absence of those the brain is actually a fairly trustworthy organ and, and by that, I don't mean that like you're going to have experiences that you're going to like. It's like saying, I when the, when the, uh, may have said this here before, when the smoke detector goes off in the kitchen when I'm cooking bacon, I don't like it. But I don't say that my smoke detector is not working right. I say, like, it's working and I don't like it. When I'm having panic, when I'm having depression, when I'm these, like, I was like, well, my brain's not working well. Fair enough. Something's not right in the kitchen. Fair enough. But the smoke detector is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. When I'm having panic, my brain is trying to let me know that something is going on. And as long as there's something going on, it's going to be necessary for me to have somebody else who's in the room who can help me imagine scenarios. So that I can make sense of what access I do have with what little access I do have. This is, this is not a small thing, especially when it comes to people who've been adopted. Right, right. People who've lived in a right, foster adoption, where they like many of them, like they they don't know who their birth parents are, they don't have access to a lot of things about their life that they don't have. They feel like they're just like coming out of a void completely, and so it's necessary for them to receive a ballast, if you will, a support network that can say this is really hard, and we may not be able to figure out all the things that happened, but we're not leaving the room. And we're, and you can count on the fact that just because you're having this and it doesn't make sense to you, we don't expect you to make sense of it overnight. We don't, we're still going to be with you and help validate what your experience is to continue to help you make sense. And then what are we then going to do with what your experiences are here today? Remember, It has a lot to do with the story that I'm telling ourselves. This is one of the main things, this whole notion of confessional communities are about helping us tell our stories more truly. And truly isn't just about true according to the facts as they happened in the past. It's also, I want to tell my story truly relative to what is the story that I want to live into. I want to live into a story in which I believe that I'm loved deeply. Now, what if I would like to know that I'm loved deeply by my birth parents and I have no idea who they are? That's going to be, you know, that's going to be like... That's the wolf at my door all the time. And if I can't access that, what am I going to need to do instead? I'm going to need to have plenty of access to people who do love me. And hmm. the here and now are going to transfer my story. And you, and this is, we, this is Mark chapter 3. The people who are in the room, they are going to be my birth parents. They are going to be my brothers and sisters who are coming to love me. Practicing this over and over and over again. And and we'll continue to say, yep, this is a hard process. This is difficult. This is not this is not easy to do. But we're not leaving the room.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And in, in our time that we have left, I have, I have a couple more questions. One, um, we had a, a listener from season four, episode five, who was concerned about a story that you told. Um it was a, sort of a, a tough story to hear about um, a family that had some issues of incest. Uh, that had happened. Mm-hmm. And um, mm-hmm. and then we didn't really talk about what happened to the person that committed these things. We talked more about how the family was surrounded by the church and um, were, were taken care of in a place um, and helped out mm-hmm. there. And I think this particular listener thought that we were saying that this was all kind of shoved under the rug and the church just took care of the situation. And so I just wanted mm-hmm. to give you a chance to um, touch on that.
1: Yeah, well, first of all, uh, thanks thanks to the listener for bringing yeah. this up. Um, grateful that you brought this to our attention, and uh, a couple of things. One is... Uh, to this story in particular, absolutely, in fact, the proper authorities were involved in this every step along the way. We didn't talk about that because that wasn't the focus right. of the attention of the story. When, those, when these kinds of things occur on my watch uh, as a mandated reporter, this is what we do. We, we are always involving the proper authorities in this. The proper authorities were involved in this, in this situation as well. It was really mostly talking about, in that instance, we were talking about what the church was doing for the people who had been traumatized. Right. So that's that and so um, so in that instance it it was it was addressed it was addressed immediately mm-hmm. uh, number one uh, number two, then to say that uh, we we always do address it anytime it's brought to our attention, so I, I think uh, to just you know emphasize uh, for anyone the absolute need to involve proper governing authorities in these kinds of situations when they arise. These are not situations that should be left just to the authority of churches or families. Uh, when these kinds of things happen, it is proper for uh, judicial authorities, uh, uh, whoever happens to be in your in your jurisdiction to be involved, and in, we're committed to that, and that's
0: what we did in that situation yeah, as well. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for clearing, clearing that up. Um, yeah. So then finally, um, in our episode on sexual trauma— uh, we we discussed you know mostly um, sexual trauma that happened to women because the statistics are so overwhelming, right? right. But we also acknowledge that this can happen to men, and uh, mm-hmm. we had several um, people reach out and, and you know talk about if we would be able to share more specifically of men who have gone through sexual trauma and the shame that um, surrounds mm-hmm. that, and if there are any resources or, uh, anything like that that you could share to help, um, someone who's gone through that.
1: Yeah. I mean, we could, it's, it's yeah. a great question, Pepper. And, and, and again, thanks. Thanks for those of you, of our listeners who, who wrote about that. You're right. Um, most of our attention was, uh, and the stories that we told were of that ilk because of the statistics. We could probably have an entire conversation. Yep about this particular phenomenon. I think that there, there are some ways in which uh, there, uh, when it comes to the sexual when it comes to sexual trauma, there are things that are unique both to what happens to women and what happens to men hmm. that have their own particular kinds of brutality in terms of what happens to us neuropsychiatrically in response to this. For men, anthropologically, in terms of like how we tend to be wired in general, uh, I mean, every human being tends to, of course, want to feel like you have agency to protect yourself, agency to move in the world and not be afraid. Again, we could talk forever and a day about this, but men tend to be the aggressors in general. Right. If you look at all the people who start wars, like not a lot of women. Start wars. Not a lot of women are starting the fights in the kitchen with their husbands. It does happen. It does happen. But we tend to be the aggressors. And so the whole notion, the inbuilt notion that as, you know, a guy who's 6'2 and 185 pounds, I should be able to handle myself in a fight. You know, if you're a young boy and you're, just, you're, you're playing, and, and especially if a male is a perpetrator, right. it is particularly damaging in a particular way. And the the statistics would indicate that those boys that have been sexually abused are statistically more likely to repeat that behavior Mm -hmm. than the average boy developing uh, as a way to cope with and work out unfinished, unresolved traumatic experiences. And here's the thing. uh, you know, for, for most men for whom this happens, it happens usually developmentally in at early stages of the game in the first two decades of life. For most men, this is not happening once they're out of their teenage years. For most men, it's happening when they're young boys, teen or preteens, teenagers perhaps. And one of the things that we have to recognize is that uh, in order for a male to be able to regulate his own aggression, interestingly enough, one of the most important features that uh, helps him regulate his aggression is his also having been deeply affectionately loved. Seen, sued, safe, secure. This The fact that I can be seen by my dad, seen by other men in my life, and drawn in and held and protected, and not just that I'm protected, I'm protected certainly against them, against outside forces, but also demonstrating the value of my inner sense of myself, of feeling of, of feeling needy, of feeling sorrow, of feeling sadness, of my tears as a, as a male being welcomed into the room. When those kinds of things are taking place, I'm far more able to regulate my aggression because so much of male aggression is my attempt to work out the places where my, I myself have been wounded and have not had that addressed. Hmm. And where it can be most powerfully addressed Interestingly enough, I I absolutely need the female presence to care for me in that way. But I actually, even more so, need a male presence to validate that to be male and to be broken is not to be something that you're ashamed of. But this is kind of what males live with. We live with this felt sense of there's something wrong with me. And I got to protect myself from myself, from that internal state of affairs. I'm going to burn lots of energy doing that. And when I do that, I end up having, I I keep that, you know, encased. And when I can't do that anymore, like I I act it out with my own aggression. And so, um, you know, to those men who've had this experience, I would say, uh, I would love nothing more than for, I mean, what, what you need is a community of other men and women Uh, who are willing to embrace you and say, uh, I want the part of you that has been wounded, that has been traumatized. That's the part that I want to be with in the room. I want that part to not be ashamed. I want that part to be healed. And we need men in our lives in the presence of whom we can reveal these things. Mm. But not, not exclusively men. We need women in our lives for whom we can do this as well in order for those parts to be regenerated and recommissioned. Uh, Because often what happens, this is the beautiful thing that we see, is that when men have their trauma regenerated, they become powerful conduits for healing and regeneration for other men who've had that Mm. experience. You know, I... I, uh, in, in terms of, and, and, you know, and of course, there's all kinds of ways in which men are are, are, are sexually abused. And, and we wouldn't, we might not necessarily think of it in these terms, but the, probably the single most ubiquitous, powerful way in which men are sexually abused is through their participation in in, in, in pornography. Hmm. Because pornography is abusive, not just to the women who are involved in this, mostly women. I mean, men too, of course, but mostly women. It's not just that, it is also... It's, it's abusive to the men who view it, who participate in it. Hmm. And so our hope is, you know, we, we've, I, my, my friend, uh, Michael John Cusick, uh, runs a, an organization called Restoring the Soul is in Colorado, um, that does a lot of work, uh, not least of which he, he does, he does these, he does these men's retreats that I've, that I've personally been able to participate in as a shepherd. He will have about. 20 shepherds that will, people who are helping them bring about 30 guys in to do work for a weekend intensive, uh, many of whom have had, you know, really painful experiences with sexual brokenness. And, uh, he would be one resource that I would say is, is really helpful
0: for, has been helpful for a lot of people. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Kurt. Um, yeah. So I really want to take this time too to just thank our listeners because you had such an overwhelming response to when we asked for questions. You really opened up and and asked a lot of questions and and told some of your personal stories and we just uh, we just really appreciate you. We appreciate that you uh, are listening. You know this is the final episode of um, season five. Um, we've traveled through this uh, twelve episodes on trauma season four. season four. Sorry, season four. It feels like ten uh, <laughs> season four, and we are. What am I supposed to do? Okay, wait. Okay, you're like you're landing
1: this plane so beautifully, and I, I probably just like I'm like I don't want right. to make right. the reason
0: see... why I said yeah, six. I'll, I'll tell you in a second is because <laughs> season <laughs> five is coming out on July the 6th. So Talk mark to your me. calendars. Um, you would think after 12 episodes of Trauma, we would be talking about you know, <laughs> laughter and joy, but we are digging into The Soul of Shame for season five. And I am really excited about it. Kurt Thompson's second book uh, entitled The Soul of Shame, uh, similarly to the way that we went through The Soul of Desire In the third season, uh, we're going to go through Mm. chapter by chapter, the soul of shame, and we are all going to benefit from it. And I can't wait. Kurt, Mm. thanks for this great season. Mm. And um, we are going to head over to our YouTube channel now to have our post-show conversation with Amy. We've saved a question, um, a couple of questions, but one of the questions that uh, I'm looking forward to answering is uh, how... Kurt and I and Amy all became friends and, and how we came mm. to know each other. So um, be sure to check that out as well. Kurt, I love you and we'll be back next season. Love you, man. Awesome. Right. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and
1: myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Sons.
0: Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to
1: our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be now.